Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, Helen and I are talking to Chris Bickerton about techno-populism. Why do two words that sound as if they shouldn't go together, in fact, help explain contemporary politics? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics, and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. Chris, I think most people would struggle to see maybe how techno and populism go together. So the techno here is not German dance music. It relates to primarily technocracy, which I think most of us understand as a kind of government by experts or elites, educated elites, people with a claim to a special kind of knowledge. And then the common association with populism is often the opposite of that, that populist politicians complain about the elites with the special knowledge, or at least making those claims. And they push back with ideas of popular wisdom or folk wisdom. But you argue that these two ideas actually go together and there's a kind of logic joining them up. So just take us through that. Why do they hook onto each other? So I think you're absolutely right. Um, appearances suggest that populism and, and technocracy are at odds with one another. We see that in the climate debates. Activists tell us we have to listen just to the science and ignore the politicians as much as possible, especially the populist politicians. We've seen it in the pandemic about following the science rather than following a populist tendency to ignoring scientific expertise. Really, wherever you look, you find this opposition. Um, so it does exist in the world, and I don't think we are trying to suggest it doesn't. But if you also look around, you see pretty obvious manifestations of in some way a coming together of the two. What struck me really recently over the last few weeks has been this new Italian government, which in an absolutely direct way fuses populism and technocracy together. The technocrat in chief really is Mario Draghi, uh, the head of the Italian government, and he's propped up by two populist pillars, the Five Star Movement and the Lega. So that is a, a techno-pop government, if you like, if you wanted to classify it. There is, however, beyond just appearances, I think an underlying affinity, and it's that both populism and technocracy, appeals to expertise and appeals to the people, are in some way an approach to politics that associates politics with a kind of truth. For the populists, the truth lies in the people themselves, and then in the ability of the populist leader to say what he or she thinks the people really believe. The technocrat situates the truth in what the evidence tells them in a particular policy response. But the affinity is that both are a kind of politics of truth. And what they oppose, what they sort of are very critical of then, is a different kind of politics, which is what I suppose we would call a more traditional ideological form of politics, uh, a politics of left and right, where there isn't really truth as such. There are just clashes of different value systems. And one side may have a certain set of values and the other side has a different set of values. But it doesn't really make sense to say you are right or you are wrong. It's just that you, you disagree. Whereas populism and technocracy, I think, have this underlying affinity, which is that both subscribe to a view of the world that really categorizes things in terms of truth and falsehood or right and wrong. And that brings them together, I think, and makes them compatible with one another. Helen, do you, do you see techno-pop governments around us? Do you think that the Draghi government, does that make sense as a characterization of it? 
Well, I was going to press you on this, Chris, because I think you're right, obviously, on the surface, that's exactly what's gone on in Italy, because we have a technocratic government that's supported in the legislature, as you say, to conventionally describe populist parties. But isn't part of the issue here that the populists' parties aren't actually allowed to govern in Italy because there's been a decisive shift to technocratic politics, so that even when they were in government, in coalition with each other, They still had to have a prime minister who was an academic and the finance minister also couldn't be an elected politician. So is this a evenly balanced, actually genuinely hybrid phenomenon? Or is it one in which there is, at least in the Italian case, the possibility that actually it's the technocratic part that's dominant and that the populist part has had to be subordinate because of the fear of populism in Italy and in the European Union more widely because of Italy's position in the Eurozone is so great. So Italy is a really interesting case because you had this very stark opposition, what seemed to be a stark opposition between populism and technocracy a few years ago where Silvio Berlusconi was shunted aside and you had this professor of economics, again, another archetypal technocratic figure, Mario Monti, brought in to run the government. And in some ways, Helen, what you're suggesting is that there's a kind of rerun here. But I think that still makes it quite difficult to understand a number of things. And one is that if we take, for instance, the Five Star Movement, there was a lot of questions asked about why the Five Star Movement was so willing to go into a coalition with a party so apparently ideologically different from itself, the Lega. You wondered why a figure such as Conte emerged out of the Five Star Movement, as a, as you say, as a kind of academic, more technocratic figure, different from Beppe Grillo, the 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 outspoken populist co-founder of the Five Star Movement. But I think it's just a, a misreading of the movement itself to think of it as being simply populist against which it's struggling to impose itself against, if you like, the forces of the outside or of the state that try to keep Italy on a technocratic road. I think the Five Star Movement itself was always deeply ambivalent and it contained within itself this combination of expertise and populism. It was deeply anti-establishment, but also committed to a very pragmatic, non-ideological sort of politics that put a lot of emphasis on getting the job done, finding the right solutions. It had a rather quixotic way of coming to those solutions, which was heavily dependent on the web and on uh, the internet. But it fused, I think, itself, populism and technocracy. So I think, yes, and Italy, there is this kind of constant struggle. And we saw it again when um, when the nomination for a European minister in Italy was slapped down by the president, a potential clash there between populism and technocracy. So in Italy, there's lots of examples of a clash. But I think in order to understand the political landscape as well, we need to think of this of this affinity. The way you described it, Chris, up front is that there, you know, there's something that they have in common, which is what they oppose. And it's a classic left-right politics based on values or possibly even ideologies rather than the truth. Is there also a sense when you think about the Italian case, but we'll come on to other examples as well, that what they have in common, the populists and the technocrats, is a suspicion that that kind of politics and that kind of opposition is a bit fake. I mean, it is against, quote unquote, the political class, the idea that professional politicians, particularly professional party politicians, have somehow become, and it does tie in with the language of corruption, corrupted by the system, incapable of seeing the stark choices and oppositions that are needed, and that that's what they have in common. So it's not just against left and right, but it's against what left and right have become. I think it's, it is it is that, and it's even more than that. I think it's it gains its strength from just a real-world decline in the vitality of the politics of left and right. We often think of left and right as just 
associated with particular political parties, or we think of it as a sort of ideological rhetoric, if you like, as language. Uh, but the politics of left and right for the large part of the 20th century was about society and the way societies were organized and structured. The politics of left and right was given a, a real meaning and a real urgency by clashes between social classes, between organized groups. It, it had a, an existence in the way society was organized. And as that kind of society has disappeared, the politics of left and right has been left sort of hanging in this rather empty political space. And that, I think, is what gives force to, to techno-populism, is that it's a political logic that is premised on relating to people and society in a very general and a very direct way. Populist element is about the people and the technocratic element is about policies, the right policies, policy choices. And it corresponds actually much better to the social structure of the kind of societies we're talking about, it corresponds better. So it's a form of politics that corresponds better to the societies that we have around us, which are more individualized, more fragmented, much weaker class identities, much weaker forms of professional organization, work-related organization. Basically, fragmented societies generate a need, a demand for techno-populism. I want to come back to Italy in a second, but I'm going to ask this question to Helen because it's, you know, it's a striking example, one of the ones that you write about, that Blair, Blairism is an original form of techno-populism. And Blair's associated with many catchphrases. Uh, but one of the ones that I remember is that he said New Labour was the political wing of the British people as a whole. And there is that idea, it picks up on what you've just said, that what the technocrats and the populists have in common is a kind of holistic view of the society over which they aspire to govern, that it can be treated as a single thing. And that is, I mean, I do remember that that was one of the almost jarring features of Blairism. It's such an astonishing statement, the political wing of the British people as a whole. Helen, does it does Blairism ring a bell with you as a, an early techno-populist forerunner? I can definitely see um, where Chris is coming from, conceptualising Blair and New Labour in this way. And I think that both absolutely right in saying there was something that was simultaneously pretty populist in its in the way that we now would understand that term in early Blair. And he was forever talking about the people and trying to turn this, that and the other into the people's will. I remember when the issue was fox hunting, it became the people's will and the Lord's being the obstruction to the people's will being implemented. And his most famous catchphrase of all, the people's princess. Yeah. That, that, you know, it, it is a people word. And I think it's, it's also true that Blair and Gordon Brown in this respect came into office very much wanting to say that they were the competent ones when it came to managing Britain's place in the in the world economy, that they knew how to do macroeconomic decision-making in the globalised world. And if you wanted a, a symbol of their approach to that, it was the early decision to give operational independence to the, the Bank of England. So I definitely see this simultaneous appeal to the people and the, the new Labour Party representing the will of the British people and at least as that was the way the Blair wanted to construct it and a, a strong conviction that they were conveying that they knew how to do things. They knew what competence was and that was what demarcated them from the Conservatives. I think it's Chris is also right that we could only understand the rise of new Labour in the context in which certain economic questions had been depoliticised. Nonetheless, it seems to me that Blair was very keen on suggesting that this was still a party of the centre-left. He didn't actually want to transcend the conflict, the party conflict with the Conservative Party. He wanted to position Labour as superior within it. And if you take certain questions that weren't 
economic questions, particularly, I would say, constitutional and cultural questions, including the, the structure of the union. He very much wanted to present these at Labour as a, as a modernising force, as doing something that was really quite substantively different than what had come before and wasn't simply a question of managing a status quo. Well, I think Helen's right about New Labour. Techno-populism in, in the context of New Labour was definitely or should be associated, I think, with the whole ideological project of the third way or the project, if you like, of transcending kind of traditional ideological divisions and cleavages. What's interesting, I suppose, is the extent to which if you think of New Labour as techno-populism, that excludes them from actually doing anything significant of historical significance, whether there's a sense in which techno-populism as a kind of label implies the absence of any real change. And there I think I would say, I mean, that might be where New Labour in some way sort of stands out as maybe an exception to the rule. I'm just thinking about it because in general, I think techno-populism is defined by a kind of kind of stasis, if you like, uh, which is to say that technocrats are not themselves committed to left or right. The term itself, technocracy, doesn't mean that it's necessarily programmatically tied to the left or the right. We can think of sort of technocracy in relationship to socialism as much in relationship to a sort of neoliberalism. Uh, it's a it's ideologically sort of indeterminate in that sense. Uh, and populists famously can be found on the left or the right. And I think when you have a sort of a techno-populist political logic. What's quite striking is that political parties and figures that situate themselves within that logic often end up being much more preoccupied with being seen to be doing something than with any particular set of political goals or political project. It's a kind of politics of doing, of constant doing, of constant activity, rather than a politics based on representing a particular constituency who want X and Y to be done. Uh, you see it in some of the kind of recent political figures, I think, where the emphasis has really been on their busyness, on their hyperactivity, as they used to talk about Nicolas Sarkozy in, uh, in France. And Macron in France said in his uh, book before he was elected that the French are not interested in representation anymore, they just want action. There is this kind of results-orientated aspect to techno-populism that I think fuses populism and technocracy, but is also curiously unrelated to some of the big revolutionary projects that we associate of, with you know, ideological politics. So Macron is a really interesting example. He is, in some ways, a Blairite politician. He feels Blairite in some respects, but in other respects, he's pretty different. And to Helen's point about whether this really does take us beyond left and right or doesn't, so Macron has jumbled up the categories and he's sort of messed with people's heads trying to think about where he fits. And yet there is a conventional story that's told about him, which is he's moved from the left to the right. So in this techno-populist journey to be constantly active and on the move, that seems to have what's happened to him. He's he's now a centre-right politician, isn't he, as well as being for you an emblematic techno-populist politician. I mean, I've sort of said this myself about Macron in the past is that uh, in some way there's a kind of essence to Macron that uh, needs to be uncovered and is he sort of really driven by rolling out a neoliberal agenda in France, for example? Is he preoccupied most of all with some of the issues related that are very dear to the heart of the French right, such as laïcité and uh, Islamic separatism, as he calls it? Or is he sort of you know, somebody who has travelled in this way ideologically? I think one of the mistakes is that we actually try to pin something on Macron at all. I think there is genuinely at the heart of his project nothing at all. There is a, an attempt to sort of cobble together and combine things which are, are a product of his desire to 
as you put it, David, is to is to have a uniquely holistic political project and to not to connect with any particular parts of society at all. I think that's one of the features of, of Macronism. And if you go back to 2017, I think there is no doubt that if you project onto Macron versus Le Pen, this sort of ideological left-right lens, it's quite hard to make sense of that particular campaign. I think Macron won because he was much more of a techno-populist than, than Marine Le Pen was. And Le Pen lost because she was not enough of a techno-populist. But both, I think, were playing along this logic. So I think what Macron represents at the same time is definitely a shift on certain questions in France that over time have changed. Commitment to the market, a certain acceptance that there are serious sort of social divisions in France that are framed in terms of a kind of civilizational clash, hence his his big agenda on Islamic separatism. There is a sense in which the political debate in France, I think, has drifted to what we would classically call the right. But Macron himself as a politician, I think, is really just a unity of, of contradictions. And that's why over time, I think, his project has unraveled, but it's also it's not legible in, in a left-right sense. Yeah, I think that Macron's a really both complicated case and a very interesting case, because I, when I started thinking about technopopulism and Macron, it makes quite a bit of sense for the reasons that Chris said and there's undoubted populist in Macron in terms of the way in which he presented the French elite, the French establishment, which of course which he come from um, himself in any any number of ways of being essentially corrupt and entirely unup to the task that was confronting France. Even in his early phase in 2017, much less of an appeal to technocratic competence in the way in which there was to Blair, and I think there are some parallels between Blair and Macron. He hadn't really got an issue that he could latch onto in the same way in which Blair and Brown could latch onto the, the issue of monetary policy and the, making the Bank of England independent. In some sense, Macron's best understood as somebody whose sort of basic starting place is he, he wouldn't, I think, like this comparison with Trump, but like make France great again. And that he has seen himself in that really as a heroic character. So having a destiny. He loves talking in that language. And I think it's quite hard to recognise his sense of the heroic political agent with a technocratic sense of politics. The way I describe Macron is the people's problem solver. Uh, and that, I think that's genuinely how he put himself forward as this kind of heroic figure, as you said, Helen, absolutely. And that generated a few problems in France because of its authoritarian overtones. But he presented himself as this sort of um, saviour but a saviour of what exactly? What does he bring? Uh, and he brings, I think, this capacity to act. And one of his criticisms of the French political establishment was just that it had done nothing for so long. It was no longer, as you say, up to the task in terms of delivering. There's this big emphasis on not being about a particular part of France or being identified with any particular class or party or anything. It's about finally getting stuff done in France. His efficiency, his drive, his ability personally to get things done and also to draw on all of the technocratic force of the French state to do that. And we shouldn't forget that back in 2017, when he put his first government together, half of the ministers in that government were nominated explicitly on the basis of their technocratic expertise, not because of their political affiliation. So I think there was that strain of being the people's problem solver that really goes back to the beginning of his, of his time in office. Because that phrase suggests another way you could have a purer form of techno-populism. And there are examples of this. I'll come on to the obvious one in a second which would be the idea that the people don't need a problem solver in the form of an elected represented politician because the people can solve problems themselves. So you have that understanding that politics is about coming up with the right answer. But what's been missing is actually using the wisdom of crowds or however you want to conceive it, the ability of democratic publics 
to think through problems for themselves. That then also connects to the other word that techno could relate to here, which is technology rather than technocracy. And the idea that digital technology creates platforms on which it is possible to consult the people. So the pure version of this, to go back to Italy again, and then we'll leave Italy, the pure version of this would seem to be five star in its uh, one of its earlier incarnations as a party that was designed to use technology in order to consult the wisdom of crowds of the people to come up with new solutions. And yet, you know, in the history of you know, the digital technology revolution, there have been moments where people have been quite utopian about the thought that this technology allows direct access to forms of popular wisdom. That five-star moment looks a little bit like a flash in the pan now. Would you agree, Chris? I mean, that the purest form of all, if that is the purest form, looks like its moment has come and gone. What you say definitely does capture a big part of the five-star promise and project. Partly it was to do with the web, and this was the philosophy of its co-founder, Gian Roberto Castaleggio, who had this idea, which then Grillo popularized and articulated, which is if you use the web, you can harness the collective intelligence of, of human beings together, all together, to solve some of the big problems of the world. And he sort of made a big deal about that. And at the Italian level, there was a more localized version of the same thing. But what was distinctive, I think, about Grillo and Casaleggio was that their version of techni, the expertise they were interested in, was the one of ordinary people. It wasn't the one of the high-ranking state bureaucrats that work in the in the Macron universe. It was everyday people like doctors, nurses, teachers, engineers, people not involved in politics who have experience, for example, running a budget in a house. They have much better experience uh, of budgetary affairs than the finance minister, and therefore they should sit in the finance ministry and, and run, run that. That was Grillo's vision. It coincided actually with a, 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 an uptake in the interest in people thinking more broadly about democratic politics with knowledge and the epistemic dimension of democracy and the idea that actually knowledge is a critical part of what we think of democratic politics to be and that perhaps we should put more emphasis on knowledge in democracy and in thinking about democratic choices and capabilities than we have done before. So I think the Five Star Movement were sort of part of this broader epistemic turn in democracy. It's not a part of their project that I think has been particularly successful, to be honest. But I don't think it's disappeared entirely. And it may be one of the reasons why sort of support for the Five Star has started to decline, because this earlier idealism of the of the of the movement has uh, has waned, so I don't think it's quite a flash in the pan. I mean, the technological dimension is interesting. I think for the five star, it really was mediated through technology. But I think in some of the other cases of techno populism, the technocratic element isn't so much reliant on technology as such. It's more just thinking about what kind of knowledge these figures and these parties are bringing into politics. And just to go back to the Labour Party, for New Labour, it was really the pollsters. You know, there's a real transformation of the Labour Party around the expertise of people who can manipulate what we thought public opinion was. And you had the sort of emergence of focus group-based politics. So the kind of technique for New Labour was, again, different from Macron, different from, from the Five Star. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And it does also bring to mind the current British government 
come on again to the pandemic in a second, but maybe we spend too much time talking about him, though we haven't talked about him for a while. But Dominic Cummings is someone who might combine these three elements, actually, both a infatuation with uh, digital technology and its possibilities and its promise, a deep interest in responding very directly to what the people think and want, and quite a high premium on very specialist kinds of expert knowledge. And the thought that these things go together. I mean, isn't Cummings a fairly pure techno-populist? I, I think that you, you could certainly cast Cummings in the way in which um, you have just done as a, as a techno-populist. And I think if you look at his critique of the, the European Union, the, the fundamental basis, I think, in the end of his Euroscepticism was, as he saw it, the European Union didn't do error correction. It was set up in such a way that mistakes, once they are made, can't be undone, that it's too rigid a form of political decision making that's embedded in the EU's institutional structures and I, I certainly think that you could then if you're going to cast Brexit in populist terms which for reasons you know I might be a bit skeptical I'm about but if we are for the sake of argument and then we cast Cummings's support for Brexit into that and look at what the basis of his support for Brexit was I think you could say that it's the poor quality of the decision making that comes out of the European Union that drove his rejection of Britain's membership of the European Union and then you could also look at the ways in which he used data in terms of from his point of view the way in which Leave could win the um, election campaign and his sense that that what happened in the campaign really mattered um, to the outcome then again, I think he thought of that as a knowledge problem or as a problem that could be solved with better knowledge. Whether that's a, a really accurate way, though, of understanding the dynamics around Brexit or the outcome of the, the referendum, I think that's that's a whole different question. Chris, you could say one of the, the challenges here is this term, I mean, it's to your argument, but also it's a challenge to your argument. It is pretty ecumenical. It can kind of cover everything. There's a way of painting Cummings as a techno-populist there's a way of painting Boris Johnson as a techno-populist there's a way of painting Theresa May as a techno-populist in a way there's a way of painting everyone as a techno-populist I don't know if that supports your argument or if it challenges it the thing that I think is important is that though they may have these dimensions of techno-populism to them they don't combine populism and technocracy necessarily in the same way and that's where I think put the emphasis on, on I suppose what we might call varieties of techno-populism so if the kind of broad sort of structural argument is to say that our societies have changed over a number of decades such that the relationship between the political sphere and society is only through these broad holistic appeals to society as a whole because of the slow fragmentation and disappearance of all these intermediary layers that sit between society and uh, and politics, then there is a structural dimension to techno-populism as a logic, which means that, yes, you would expect political parties of all stripes to in some way orientate themselves around it, even if they might be much more comfortable with the old ideological politics, they actually struggle to win elections that way. But the fusion of populism and technocracy, the kind of techni that we're talking about, I think changes a lot. But Cummings, I always thought he was a, a great example, not to reduce him to just this category, but I think it was an important part of who he, you know, who he is as, a, as an individual, as a sort of character. There was a great essay in the LRB a while ago by James Meek, where he described him as a techno-populist. And I remember the comment that Cummings made on going into the cabinet room, the room where the cabinet meet for the first time, and his main comment was that it was so deplorable in terms of the technology present within that room. There was no technology whatsoever. Even the clock on the mantelpiece didn't work. Um, he was outraged. Um, and so he had this kind of techno-philia 
that really drove his assault on the on the Whitehall machinery. And in some ways, the kind of the clash between Cummings and Whitehall is a is a clash between two different conceptions of technique, two different understandings of um, of skill and expertise in running the state. Very different conceptions that just couldn't coincide, couldn't coexist with one another. And on top of that, you know, Cummings was a central figure in the the populist turn of British politics, if you if you want if you want to call it that. So yes, I think he does uh, does fit in there quite well. Somebody observed to me recently that uh, Angela Merkel is a good techno populist, and I was a bit sort of you know, interested. But uh, I think you just have to be very careful about what exactly you mean in terms of how she might fuse together an appeal to the people and an appeal to expertise. And it's done very differently by different parties and actors. So let me. Give me one other example of what might be called a, a pure version of it, but very different, because our assumption here is that this is an aspect of democratic politics. But if you frame it as you did with Macron and Trump, make France great again, make America great again, there is a kind of make China great again aspect to the contemporary government and governance of China. Chinese government is very heavily focused on forms of specialist and expert knowledge, particularly, but not exclusively, engineering knowledge, but also economic knowledge too. But it is populist nationalist and it is preoccupied, as all unelected regimes are, with public opinion and indeed with polling and using new technology, maybe if not explicitly to poll, as we might think in a democratic sense, but certainly to track or to use the more scary word surveil public opinion. So this is presumably not just a democratic phenomenon. I mean, techno-populism must be consistent with non-democratic forms of government too. Technocracy as an idea, as a concept, as something with a, a kind of long-standing history, has a fairly ambivalent relationship to democracy and very much a antagonistic one. Populism as a term is this broad sort of holistic appeal to the people that sits very uneasily with the much more divided and partisan appeals of, of democratic party politics. So both technocracy and populism uh, have this complicated relationship to the concept of democracy, which is why I think you then find these aspects of you know technocratic appeals to, to expertise and the language of populism outside of democratic regimes. What I'm trying to describe with the concept of technopopulism, I mean, it really is associated with the transformation of democratic regimes and internal transformation based on the, the changes in their social structure. So the techno dimension of technopopulism, for me, at least when we think of British politics or French or Italian politics or the United States and these democratic states, it's not so much taking decisions out of politics and investing them in independent authorities, which is a more conventional understanding of technocracy. And this is a feature of our societies as well. For me, technopopulism is the politicization of expertise. It's bringing the experts and claims about expertise into politics and making them part of what electoral party competition is about. So in some ways, it's a reverse movement. I do think you're right that we can think of these themes as being relevant for non-democracies. But as a political logic, I'm interested in technopopulism in the way in which this, this talking about expertise and competence and these appeals to the people become part of competition between political actors seeking office. And therefore, it's very much a democratic political logic uh, rather than something that you know, reproduces itself exactly in the same way in, in non-democracies. I just wanted to ask you, Chris, about the way in which you think about the more ideological forms of politics that you see that haven't been left behind, so to speak, in democratic politics. Because what I understand you saying is that at the heart of this is the changing relationship between society and politics and including the, the changing place of class conflict in democratic 
politics that in certain sense that what has happened, the political logic of technopopulism arises from the depoliticization of economic questions. How do you fit the growing importance or what many people think of anyway is the growing importance of cultural questions, including religious questions, into democratic politics? Because the country that you obviously leave out of this for obvious reasons is the United States, which was the place in the 90s where you can see some of the same dynamics in Europe, the kind of the third way, Clinton trying to get beyond ideological conflicts about the organisation of the economy. But we very much see what came to be called culture war politics in the United States in the in the 1990s. So isn't there a different way of thinking about this, which would say that actually that the conflicts have changed from being economic to cultural and if they have where does technopopulism fit into that yeah i think it's a, a big debate one way of putting it is to say have we seen the emergence of a new cleavage or conflict line in politics away from debating the the market and trying to limit the market or eliminate the market and replace it with other ways of running the economy towards as you say these kind of cultural questions of identity the point about technopopulism i think is that it's a political logic that rests on this stark division this separation between politics and society. This is what Peter Mayer described as as the void. Now, it's possible that the conflicts that you're describing, Helen, reflect a transformation in society such that that void has been filled by new forms of community and that these different communities are then being reflected in this cultural clash. I don't dispute for a second that politics is still about many things and it's not just about being shown to be good at doing things but it's about particular disagreement. Questions of sort of uh, culture and identity are really central to that and in places like France the question of sort of religion and the relationship between different religious minorities and the status of religion in society is kind of a big, you know, massive debate. Um, what I'm just not so clear about is that it has translated into a fundamental restructuring of society so that you have organisationally and institutionally these different communities then imprinting themselves upon our politics in the old ways that left-right politics did, which, as I said before, was really rest, really rested on high levels of community organisation. I just I think the divide, the void is still there. Um, and technopopulism is a form of politics that corresponds to it. There are other sort of conflicts that are around. And in some ways, you know, the echoes of the old ideological politics are definitely still here. The point about technopopulism is not that nothing else exists in politics apart from that. It's that if you try and fight a traditional old ideological campaign of the left-right kind, then I think you will struggle to get any sort of traction. But there are, you know, societies are complex uh, phenomena and there are lots of issues, questions of social integration that have not gone away and they manifest themselves in our politics. So I would say that there's a sort of uneasy coexistence, I think, from the perspective of a politician who's thinking about how to run and what campaign to run. It becomes very difficult how to decide whether to prioritise these issues or or not, where exactly to start. The lines of division and conflict are not that obvious anymore. Um, and sometimes they just get it, they get it wrong. One of the things about the culture wars, which I would say is that for me, the culture wars has served as a way to really emphasize the apparent division between populism and technocracy. And I think in that sense, we've overplayed them. You know, I was really struck by a piece by Simon Cooper in the FT a few months ago, where he said, he said, populists have basically come to the end of the road, and they have to choose whether they want to embrace policy and embrace technocracy, or they're going to fight these endless, empty culture wars that have no policy content whatsoever. And that's, that is essentially a kind of a way of maintaining this opposition between populism and technocracy, but it's also a way of criticising those who vote for populists by suggesting that they have no interests in policy whatsoever. 
So I think sometimes the way we talk about the role of the culture wars in our politics is a way of propping up sort of assumptions that we might make about why people vote for the parties that they that they vote for. And so I think that's as that I would be a bit critical about that way of looking at things. So to finish, can I ask you a question about the pandemic? It's a question for both of you. And what we've talked about suggests to me there are three ways someone might argue that the pandemic has illustrated what we've been discussing, three different interpretations of it. So one, the one that you touched on at the beginning, Chris, relates to what you said about Simon Cooper's approach, that the last year has really emphasised the gap between populist politics and the politics that rests on knowledge and expertise. And the arguments that have been made, many people have pointed to the apparent failure of so-called populist governments, Trump's, Bolsonaro's, maybe even Johnson's, on the raw numbers relative to a measure of how different nations have performed relative to, again, some governments, some democratic governments, some regimes that aren't democratic that have done better because they have been much more focused on evidence-based solutions. So that's one thought that actually the pandemic has highlighted the gap. Another is that the pandemic has produced pretty pure forms of techno-populist government, maybe including Johnson's pre- and post-Cummings. There's an attempt to marry the science with public opinion tracked pretty immediately and to try and come up with a form of politics that can speak to both. And then there's the possibility that actually the pandemic is going to reintroduce new ideological divisions. And even if they're not classic left-right divisions, they're going to be closer to that. Things that we've talked about, Helen's brought up many times, the new politics, the looming politics, new but also familiar, of unemployment, the tough economic choices that have to be made short, medium and long term, and that we may be moving past the techno-populist phase that actually what the pandemic has done has created the possibility, at least, of a watershed. And especially, Chris, if you really do think techno-populism is fundamentally empty, the pandemic may be filling the gap in a different way. In the obvious way, I think we have to separate out what's gone on for the last year or so and what's likely to happen in the next few years, assuming that we do get into post-pandemic mode, which will be very much concentrated then on the, the economic consequences of pandemic. And once we're into that, it's very, very difficult to see how distributional conflicts aren't coming to the, the fore. And that will both be because of the immediate issues of unemployment, but also because of the accelerated change around in economies that the pandemic has brought about. And we're going to see a situation in which the service sectors are going to have more difficult time recovering, particularly if people continue to be cautious in other parts of the um, economy. We look like we're going to see accelerated digitalization, and there will be winners and losers in that. We've already seen that we're moving into having a much more geopolitically charged world economy where supply chains are concerned. And once you get that kind of international distributional conflict, you tend to get domestic distributional conflict as well. So I find it quite difficult to see, and, and that's before we even get to climate change issues, I find it quite difficult to see how we're not going back to a form of politics that it might not be conducted in the old languages of ideology, but there are going to be, at its quite fairly central to it anyway, significant conflicts of economic interest. I'm very sympathetic to what Helen's saying. I hope she's right. It sounds to me a better form of politics than what I'm describing with techno-populism. Um, but it's not clear to me that that's necessarily the case. I don't think, for example, that distributional questions have ever gone away. I think that's what they've been with us throughout this whole period. And having societies characterised by uh, high levels of inequality, having government policies that affect different parts of society in very different ways, 
that all exists, but it doesn't mean that necessarily the political responses to it will be in the form of these ideologically charged conflicts. It seems to me entirely possible that distributional questions can generate a response of essentially uh, a, a, tech, a technocratic response, where these are divisions that need to be managed, mitigated, overseen, uh, coordinated, responded to in a very technocratic way. But they also generate these sort of calls of, of enormous disaffection and dissatisfaction with anti-establishment overtones that we associate with populism. So distributional questions, I think, have always been with us, but the way that our politics has uh, expressed them and responded to them has changed a lot. And I think the pandemic for me was interesting because at the beginning, I remember there was a, a press conference. I can't remember which one it was, but it was at the very beginning or maybe just before the first lockdown. And there was a, a reporter, I think it was Beth Rigby for Sky, and she was observing Johnson. And she wrote something where she said something along the lines of, I can't understand Johnson anymore because this person who was this populist clown is now standing around talking about nothing else than science. And so it's generally mysterious for people who stuck very rigidly to this opposition between populism and technocracy to think in terms of a combination of the two. So I think the pandemic has, in a way, brought expertise into the very centre of our politics and has deeply politicised expertise, including in instances where these are with figures, political figures, who we would think of quite often as populists. So I think that fusion has sort of been maintained. I also think that the kind of distributional questions that Helen was talking about We've seen them happening over the last year where governments have made decisions that have had enormous uh, effect on people and involve, for example, enormous wealth transfers between generations. But I'm not sure that it's been politicized in the way that she describes yet. And the final thing I would say is that I think technopopulism as a logic is, is very much here to stay, but I don't think it's a very stable logic, partly because I think when you politicize expertise, you realize that experts can't actually tell you exactly how to do something. They can only recommend certain options. And the decision about which one to pick is still fundamentally a political decision. And that, I think, really challenges some of the legitimacy of, of, the, of, of those who mobilize around appeals to expertise. And I think appeals to the people, because they're so holistic, never, never satisfy anybody. So there's something deeply unstable about technopopulism as a political logic. But I'm still not that convinced that we are seeing a, a movement beyond it yet. That that's, you know, it's entirely possible that that would be one of the outcomes of the pandemic. One very last question, totally unfair. You can give a very short answer. But as you said, you can apply this to lots of people, Angela Merkel, and maybe you want to hold the line somewhere. As you were talking, I was thinking about Keir Starmer. I can think of a way in which Keir Starmer could just about be described as a techno-populist, though he seems to be a bit sort of agonised about both sides of the equation. In other respects, he feels more like he's trying to re-establish traditional, if low wattage, traditional version of some left-right divides. But one choice on your analysis, given this logic, the grip this logic has on politics at the moment, though it may only be a passing grip, is whether to, if you're trying to win elections, stick to this logic or try and break it. If you were advising Keir Starmer, do you think thinking about the next few years, he should accept that the the techno-populist logic is here to stay for now and he's got to work within it? Or do you think a party like the Labour Party should be in the business of breaking it? I think the British Labour Party is an, is an excellent example of uh, of those two things. The whole Corbyn era, if you like, was an attempt to break it. And I don't think it was electorally can be considered a success at all. Um, no. no. <laughs> which, which means Starmer has a really stark choice. I mean, if he was to go back to the, the old sort of ways of of the Corbyn project rhetorically and politically, um, then he would probably come up against the same problems. 
in a in a in a society sort of divided and fragmented and individualized such as ours, I don't think these old ideological projects can ever work. However, I wouldn't want to recommend the Labour Party to to go down the techno populist route, though that may electorally be the most fruitful one for it. I would be much more uh, inclined to support what Helen was saying, which is that we need to politicize these new distributional conflicts in the ways that they manifest themselves to us today, not in the old ways of the 20th century, but in the you know the current ways of, uh, of 2021, and to see what sort of politics emerges out of that. Chris's new book is out now. It's written with Carlo Invernizzi Accetti, and it is called Techno-Populism, The New Logic of Democratic Politics. I'm talking about democracy this week on History of Ideas in relation to Joseph Schumpeter. It has something in common with what we've just been talking about. Next week, we are going back to the United States. We're going to be joined by Gary Gerstel, and we are going to be taking stock of the Biden administration. Just how well is it doing? And coming up after that, I'm going to be talking to the filmmaker, Adam Curtis. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Great. Okay, I will. I will make my techno techno joke for the fifth <laughs> time. Just as long as you know, I'm literally going to fall off my chair with yeah, this thing. It does. I can feel it gets funny. <laughs>